Bibles and turn with me to Ezra chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3. Appreciate Dan's reading the the scripture this morning. He struggled with a couple of words, but he had a digital Bible there. I thought maybe it would just automatically pronounce those for him. They have programs where you can go and you can look up how to pronounce Bible names. And uh, sometimes I really need to do that. Uh, but uh, uh, my wife says I mispronounce many of the Bible names as well. So uh, uh, you're in good company there. There was a fellow by the name of Harold Ross that started the New Yorker magazine years ago. In fact, I think this is kind of an anniversary month, February 1925, I believe, was when the first issue came out. Uh, it's not a magazine I would necessarily recommend, or but it was interesting uh, reading about it a little bit. They had very little equipment when they got started. And one day in a restaurant downstairs... Uh, he met uh, Dorothy Parker, one of the magazine's first writers, and said, What are you doing here? He says, Why aren't you upstairs working? Well, someone's using the pencil, she said. So I came down to get some coffee. Well, I think, you know, from humble beginnings, uh, of course, uh, we've all kind of gone a step up or two or three or four or ten in our technology, haven't we? And uh, so, uh, uh, yet from humble beginnings, this uh, magazine became a famous, widely circulated uh, magazine. Almost everything great has a small beginning. Uh, You've got to start somewhere, right? Well, in Ezra chapter 3, it's about starting over with God. Uh, We've talked about uh, restoring a heart for God in chapter 1. And uh, uh, we... We looked at some of the, uh, the people and the, and some of the things that were going on in chapter two. But, uh, here we come to a chapter that's really about starting over. They're, they're coming back to the land after being in captivity for 70 years. And so to some of the old timers, it didn't look like much when they got back there. Remember, Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. Uh, and they were comparing it with the former glory of Solomon's temple that they had known. And uh, this just wasn't going to do. This was not good. So they wept while the younger men rejoiced, tells us there in the last part of the chapter. But God would use this new beginning to reestablish his people in their worship to him amidst the trouble of what once had been Jerusalem. And concerning the temple that was begun there, the Lord said, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former. In Haggai 2.9. It was this temple that the Lord Jesus himself would eventually come to and bring the greater glory. Now there are times in all of our lives when we read or we need a new beginning. We need to start over. Maybe you've had that happen in your life. Maybe it one time or even recently you failed the lord terribly uh maybe it was through some rebellion or some sin perhaps you drifted carelessly into the world and its ways you neglected the things of god and now perhaps even now some of you may be far from god 
Or you can remember that there was a time when you were far away from the Lord. And a disappointment or a trial may have caused you to drift from a close fellowship with the Lord and His people that you once enjoyed. So you need to start over. You need a new beginning. But you wonder if it's even possible. And if it is, where do you start? Well, the thought of a new beginning is scary because you don't want to risk another failure. And you're not content where you're at. You've come to realize that the idols of Babylon can't satisfy your soul. And so you're so dissatisfied in Babylon that you're willing to uproot yourself and make the difficult and perilous journey back to the land of promise, as the children of Israel did. But you get there and you discover everything's just a pile of rubble. So how do you start over with God? Well, our chapter, I think, gives us four things about starting over with God. First of all, notice our spiritual low. Starting over with God is possible no matter how spiritually low you've gone. Now, the nation of Israel was about as spiritually low as you could go. The northern kingdom had fallen to the Assyrians after a history of idolatry. The southern kingdom of Judah had fallen when Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and dragged the Jews into captivity into Babylon. Fifty years passed without, uh, went out of the gloom according to God's promise uh, through Jeremiah the prophet. He stirred the pagan king Cyrus to issue a decree permitting the Jews to return back to the land. And almost 50,000 of them responded. They gave up their lives in Babylon. They asked, uh, uh, they risked the dangerous and difficult journey across the desert, and now they were back in their land. But it wasn't the land that the old timers had known before. It was a land devastated by war, suffering uh, from 50 years of neglect. And here in chapter 3 and verse 1, We're told in the seventh month, these Jews went up to Jerusalem, according uh, to this verse here. They came to the city where the walls were torn down and the buildings, including the temple, had been destroyed 50 years before. The hostile people had moved in, viewing these returning Jews with suspicion. There was nothing happening spiritually, and yet God had promised a new beginning. And whether it is to his people corporately or as individual believers who have fallen into sin, our God is a God of new beginnings. To the fallen but repentant King David, the prophet said, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. To the disobedient and chastised prophet Jonah, vomited out of the great fish, we read in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah a second time. And to the weeping and broken Peter, the risen Savior appeared privately to restore him. I wonder this morning, have you failed the Lord somehow miserably? Well, God graciously offers you a new beginning. But where do you start? Well, the cross of Jesus Christ. New beginnings with God must focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. The first thing the leaders, Jesuit, Jeshua and Zerubbabel did was they saw a pile of rubble where the temple once stood. And what did they do? It says in verse 2, they they stood and they built an altar unto the Lord. They built an altar. 
When the people got to this devastated city, rising out of the rubble, they restored an altar. Tells us that also in verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord. And even though the foundation of the temple had not been laid, they, the sight of that altar filled them with hope. So why did they begin with an altar? It's because our fundamental need, if we want to draw near to God, is forgiveness of our sins. Usually the reason why we get away from God and our lives become a mess, it's because there's been, a, there's been sin that's come in. And if you want a new beginning, you've got to start with the forgiveness of your sins. God designated the altar so that the one bringing the offering would be accepted before the Lord. And concerning the altar, God had said, I will meet with the children of Israel in Exodus 29, 43. The sacrificial animals pointed ahead to God's perfect once for all sacrifice for sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. But where is our altar of sacrifice today? Well, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not an altar where sacrifices are made over and over again, but a place where the Lamb of God made the sacrifice for our sins once and for all. And if you have never begun with God, that's where you need to begin. You begin at the cross where Jesus, the Lamb of God, shed his blood to atone for sinners. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness. Your good works can never earn God's forgiveness. Either you put your trust in the perfect substitute that God provided, the Lord Jesus Christ, or you must pay for your own sins with eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Faith in Christ's blood is the only way to begin with God. And if you're a believer, but you've strayed from the Lord, the cross is still the place for new beginnings. It tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to live daily at the foot of the cross. But then... When starting over with God, we must focus on obedience to his word. How did they know to set up an altar? Well, look at verse 2. Then stood up Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and his brethren, and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, notice this, as it is written, in the law of Moses, the man of God. How did they know to set up an altar? As it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Why did they observe the various feasts? The Feast of Booths, for instance. Well, we read in verse 4, it says, They kept also the Feast of the Tabernacle, or the Feast of Booth, as it is written, and offered daily burnt offerings by number, notice again, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. And the word custom there means divine law. They weren't making this stuff up according to their own preferences. Uh, they didn't take a poll 
Say, you know, what do we need to do here, everybody? Uh, let's, let's take a poll and find out what people want to do. No, they acted according to the Word of God. Maybe the old way of worship wasn't in tune with modern times. Maybe the younger generation wanted a more contemporary way of meeting with God. Well, just why not throw out the old and bring in some new innovation and let's liven things up. But they didn't do that, no. They went back to the Word of God and they obeyed it. You know, we would have to say that some of our songs that we sing here are actually contemporary songs because they were written by our contemporaries, that is, people who are now living or have lived in our lifetime. So in that sense, we occasionally, believe it or not, at Spooner Baptist Church do have contemporary music. Do you know what? The contemporary music we have and we use should never violate Scripture. It should be theologically correct. It should follow the principles of music given in the Scripture. And there's some controversy in many Baptist churches today concerning this, but just because it has good words doesn't uh, make it acceptable to be sung and used in our churches. You see, the standard we need to evaluate everything is, does it line up with the Scripture, and does it properly glorify God as revealed in His Word? And does it promote holiness in God's people in line with His Word? You know, when it comes to know how we should live as God's people, we also must go to God's Word and obey His commands. God's moral commandments do not adapt to the changing morals of our time. He hasn't softened his views on premarital sex or homosexuality in spite of what our modern society feels. God doesn't say, well, if you feel really good about marrying a non-Christian and you've really prayed about it, you go ahead, I guess it's okay. No, that's not what God's word says. His word plainly declares, Be not ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And as God as his word says, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so if you want to start over with God, it's available. Begin at the cross and then walk in obedience to his word. And then fourthly, the building of his house. The building of his house. Starting over with God, we must focus on building his house. Now, verse 6, again, implies that while they were building of, uh, the rebuilding the altar, and that was good, something major was still missing. Notice again, verse 6, And from the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but... The foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Something was missing. Now, these verses contain two references uh, to the temple. You find one here in the in verse six, the temple of the Lord. You find another one in verse ten. Down there it says the foundation of the temple of the Lord. And then five references to what is called the Lord's house or the house of the Lord. You find it in verse eight. The house of the Lord, and uh, again, down at the end of verse 8, uh, house of the Lord, and then uh, in verse 11, or excuse, yes, verse 11, 
the house of the Lord in verse 12, the first house and this house. His people there uh, went there to offer the sacrifices for forgiveness of sin and thankfulness for his goodness to them. It was a place of corporate worship where all of Israel gathered three times a year for the feast of the Passover, the Pentecost, and tabernacles. And they restored the restored nation could not yet properly worship God until they rebuilt his house. And so where does God dwell today? Well, it's very interesting, but as you read the New Testament, you find the remarkable thing that is God's family, as God's family, we are now his temple or his house where he dwells in us and he walks among us. This building that we are sitting in today and keeping warm from the elements outside, this building is a place where we meet, but it's really not God's house. I know sometimes we call it God's house, and that's because it's dedicated to accomplish His work here. We've dedicated this building uh, to God, and so in that sense it's God's house, but it's really not God's house. It's only the physical place where God's house or the body of believers gathers for worship. And when we gather or assemble, then the proper term is the word church. Now, I think there's a lot of confusion concerning uh, this issue when we refer to this place or this building uh, as a church, although that's our accepted term for it. You know, we say, I'm going to church. I go to church every day, by the way, in that sense, because I come here to my study. But I don't come here to the body of believers because it's just me. Me and a few uh, ladybugs still crawling around. But the biblical sense of the word church is an assembly of Christ's body in this location. You know, many people go to a church building, but I'm afraid they're not a part of Christ's body in a particular location because in order to be a part of Christ's body, you need to be saved. Going to a church building never saved anyone. But trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior and having a personal relationship with Him is what saves you. Now the application is that if we need a new beginning with God, don't try to go by it yourself. Don't try to go it alone. There is a sense, of course, in which every new beginning must be something that takes place intensely privately. It takes place within our hearts. I can't make your new beginning for you. You have to do it yourself in your heart. You must go to the Lord in private. You must confess your sins. You must personally appropriate the shed blood of Christ. You must personally get into God's word and begin to obey it in your daily life, starting on the thought level. And if you haven't started there, you can go to church meetings every day of the week, but you will simply be reinforcing hypocrisy in your life, putting up a good front to others, while in your private life, well, it's shambles. But once you've begun in the private life, in the private, you very much need to be built together with others who have a commitment to know God. We need each other. Without that commitment to the believers, the world, the flesh, and the devil will overwhelm us. Jesus said, I will build my church. There is a sense in which we don't do the building, but we become the building material 
for the church that Christ is building right here in Spooner, Wisconsin. But you may wonder, well, how can we be used to build God's house? I think our text gives us five factors. Number one, standing together. Building God's house requires the courage to stand together against the hostile world. They rebuilt the altar because for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. It says there in verse 3. Now those words imply that there was a threatening situation that had been brought home to them, their need of help. And therefore, of that, access to God, which was promised at the altar... Some may have focused on building a strong and well-armed militia, but these men knew that the help from man is in vain if the Lord is not in his rightful place. If they put God first by rebuilding his altar, then he would protect them from the enemies who weren't happy about their return. You see, God wants a people for his name. And if we will seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he's going to take care of our basic needs. Courage doesn't mean that you have a lack of fear, but rather the gumption to stand firm in the threatening circumstances because you trust in the Lord. Courageous Christians will admit, you know, I could lose friends or I could lose my job or perhaps even my life. And yes, that is a scary thought. But I will not compromise my commitment to Jesus Christ to preserve any of those things which are going to perish soon anyway. Therefore, I must stand before God. You know, it's always easier to stand with somebody that's standing the same way you are. We need to stand together. We need to encourage one another. We need to pray for one another. So we fear God more than we fear anything in this evil world. And you may have to, uh, you may have to have that kind of courage even alone, but it's easier to take that sort of stand with other believers who support you with encouragement and prayer. Stand together. Secondly, giving your, our resources. Building God's house requires giving our resources. Now, I'm not here to beg for money. I'm not going to make a plea for raising funds here. But you know what? We do find the giving principle here, don't we? These people had just returned to the land, which meant they were giving up their source of income in Babylon. And they were making a four-month trek to a land that had no crops waiting for them to be harvested. There were no jobs or no economy that, uh, that was booming. Surely most of them were not very wealthy after 70 to 50 to 70 years in captivity. But when they saw the house of God was a pile of rubble, they gave. They gave money, they gave food, they gave drink, they gave oil for the labor, they gave the materials to rebuild the temple, it tells us in verse 7. Now let me tell you something very clearly. God does not need your money. God does not need your money. But the Bible does teach us the principles of giving. Building God's house does require money. Uh, It does require money to 
have the warmth in this building that we have this morning. You know, to maintain this building. That's that's requirement. God doesn't need it. But the Bible teaches us to give. And your willingness to give and the proportion that you give are perhaps the best indicators that Jesus is the Lord of your heart. You know, if statistics mean anything, modern churches are not living up to the Lordship of Christ. I came across three ways in which uh, giving to the work uh, people are giving to the work of their church. One way is that in churches where the sole stewardship method is receiving offerings and people base their decisions on a dollar amount without writing it on a pa- piece of paper or turning it in annually, they give a, a, a approximately 1.5% of their income. In churches that ask people to annually write on a card and turn in a dollar amount based on a budget goal, people give about an average of 2.9%. In churches that ask people to annually write on a card, turn in a dollar amount based on a percentage of their income, attendees give the average of 4.6% of their incomes. Now, I think our church really fits the first description where we receive offerings and people base their decision on how much to give on a dollar amount. We don't have you write it on a piece of paper. We don't ask you to turn it in annually. But you know what? I hope we're certainly doing better than 1.5%. And I'm not going to go into detail on the scriptural principles of giving this morning, but if you want a new beginning with the Lord, you start with the financial faithfulness. Jesus said, if you're going to be faithful with a little thing like money, God will entrust riches to you. That brings us to another area, and that is working in unity. Israel came, and it says in verse 9, the people, or verse 1, the people gathered themselves together as one man, and in verse 9 it says, then stood Jeshua with the sons, his sons and his brethren. They stood, and I think the implication here is they stood together. They stood with one another to oversee the workers who were rebuilding the temple, and unity was essential because of the enemy outside that would shortly shortly threaten and shut down the work. The leaders wisely delegated that work so that it did not fall on just a few people. Any significant work for God is the work of many members working together in harmony under godly leaders. When the enemy wants to stop such a work, he will disrupt the unity. No doubt you've seen that happen in churches before. But when that happens, there are several dangers. Leaders become tempted to compromise important truth for the sake of preserving unity. This always leads to greater disaster down the line because it undermines God's word. And leaders also can react in the flesh by lashing out in anger or personal counterattacks, thus tarnishing their qualifications as spiritual leaders. I've seen it happen in churches. I was in a business meeting of a church that we attended, that I was an assistant pastor in, where there was some real disunity going on. So much so, a deacon's wife got up in the church and yelled at another deacon 
in a business meeting. Satan was getting a, getting a better hand there, wasn't he? But that's what happens when people don't work together. Workers can use the occasion to vent their frustration against the leaders. You know, people can start murmuring and complaining about the leadership. Because of some personal issues they feel have not been properly addressed. And workers also can form uh, factions based on friendships. You know, little cliques here and there. Start to talk about things. Gossip and false rumors can quickly spread through the body because people listen to those who are disgruntled instead of going directly to the source to find out the truth. But all in all, Satan again has a heyday, and many of the Lord's people end up wounded. And so we must diligently preserve the unity of the Spirit here at Spooner Baptist Church. Seek to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace while striving to attain to the unity of the faith that comes with spiritual maturity. And then number four, renewing corporate worship. Now much could be said here, and I'll limit myself this morning, but I want you to notice from our text here that both personal and corporate worship focuses on God and affirmed by faith in His goodness and His love. Notice verse 11. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because He is good, for His mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. We also see, if you go back to verse 10, uh, worship sometimes requires skillful musicians. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests of their pair with trumpets and with the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. But you know what? If the focus of our worship is on them... Focus on the musicians, then it just becomes entertainment and not worship. Worship praises the Lord, saying, Because He is good, for His mercy endureth forever toward Israel. Remember, these people had just come through 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Many of had lost loved ones as well as their possessions and their homes while Jerusalem fell. And if they had been focused on themselves, they would have complained and they had questioned the goodness of God. But by faith, they knew that the Lord had afflicted them out of His goodness. You ever look at your afflictions as the goodness of God? Do your afflictions cause you to sing because of the goodness and His love toward His people? But also notice that these people expressed their emotions in, in their praises. They shouted for joy, and it was a loud shout. Now, some would say we're too restrained in our services. You know, uh, there's certainly a danger of emotional uh, getting emotionally pumped up by sentimental tunes sung over and over, and they produce a, a state of ecstasy. That would be wrong. But if our focus is on a great and loving and faithful 
covenant-keeping God, the truth of His Word, it will affect our emotions. How can we not be moved when we think on this abundant grace? And then finally, there's the cooperating young and old. Now the young people, it says here, were thrilled when they saw the foundation of the temple laid. You see, all they'd ever known was Babylon, its temples of idols. And here they were back in the land of promise and in the city of God's choosing and the foundation of the Lord's house was being laid and they'd never seen anything like it. But again, the old timers, they had seen something far greater. They'd seen Solomon's temple in all its gold and glory. And for them, this puny foundation amidst the rubble and the broken down walls was pitiful. And so while the young men were shouting for joy, the old men wept in grief. They couldn't tell who was laughing and who was crying. Except the division pretty much fell along age lines, I think. Well, there's two dangers here that always happen in these matters. First of all, the old men could have discouraged the young men from this new beginning. And that would have been tragic. It's a tragic thing when the older folks in a church discourage younger people for living for the Lord. But they had to start somewhere. And even though this new beginning didn't match the former glory, it was a start and it was where God was working. The other danger was that the young people could have ignored the wisdom and experience of the older folks, in which case they would have made more mistakes and repeated the failures of the past. The older folks needed the enthusiasm and the energy and the joy of the younger folks, and the younger folks needed the wisdom and maturity and experience of the older folks. Again, we need one another. We need the young people. We need the older folks. There may be some younger people here don't understand why we stay with the King James Bible and why we discourage the use of modern translations. There may be some younger people who think we're old-fashioned because we don't embrace contemporary Christian music and the new upbeat music of the day. I've seen where once good Bible-believing churches compromised in these areas all in the name of attracting young people. But let me assure you, we don't compromise in these areas on the basis of Bible principle and not on we we don't compromise on the basis of Bible principle and not on expedience or convenience. And that's why it's been my practice in the past year or so to try to diligently teach you why we reject the modern versions and why we reject the use of contemporary Christian music. And I'm trying to teach you that from God's word. You know, it's interesting, an old-time evangelist who had a Bible college named after him once said this. He said, don't sacrifice the permanent on the altar of the immediate. And sadly, that school recently had a singing group with openly self-proclaimed homosexuals give a concert on its campus. Somebody was sacrificing the permanent on the altar of the immediate. Now, I'm thankful this morning for the good number of children and teens and young families that we are, have as a part of our church. And I'm thankful for our older folks as well. Again, we need one another. But we don't need to compromise the Word of God. We need to be faithful. 
We need to be obedient to God's word in order for him to use us to build his church right here in Spooner, Wisconsin. I wonder this morning, do you need to start over with God? New beginnings with God are always possible, but they must focus on the cross, on the obedience to God's word, and be available to be used in the building of his house. Wherever you're at, God's door is open. He invites you to start over with him. Let's pray.